everyone. Welcome to my podcast, Keeping It Real with Janine, your guide to living an authentic, healthy life. I'm Janine Strong, and every two weeks, I have an inspiring conversation with an ordinary person leading an extraordinary life. Today's conversation with Mark Gober could be mind-blowing for you, or it could reaffirm your alignment with this paradigm. Mark's book, The End to Upside-Down Thinking, Dispelling the Myth that the Brain Produces Consciousness and the Implications for Everyday Life, is an essential book for those wanting to understand the true nature of reality. Hi, Mark. Welcome to my podcast. Hi, Janine. Thanks for having me. You're very welcome. Now, I know you're going to give the listeners some very interesting ideas to chew on, but first, I would like to ask you how you became interested in rethinking consciousness and where it actually comes from. Because from what I've read about you, consciousness is its not a topic you were particularly interested in. Mm-hmm. Well, it wasn't something I was expecting to study. Mm-hmm. My background's in business. I used to work on Wall Street uh, during the financial crisis. I was there from 08 to 2010. And then for the last 10 years, I've been at a, a Silicon, ba- Silicon Valley-based firm advising tech companies. So on the surface, it doesn't sound like <laughs> the kind of person who'd be looking into consciousness and phenomena that don't align with the traditional views of reality. But um, in 2016, I was listening to podcasts, and I started to hear about these topics. So I wasn't actively seeking it out. It just kind of came up in some of the conversations I was listening to. Mm-hmm. And that's what initially led me to start doing my own research. And as I did research on my own, I began to realize that I had to rethink my life and all of reality. So I did that for about a year where when I wasn't in the office, I was studying this other stuff that we'll talk about. And I just couldn't stop. I couldn't get enough because I really had to rethink everything. And that culminated after a year in my writing and into upside down thinking. Wow. I'm actually surprised that you were able to start writing a book after only a year of really exploring this subject. Yeah, well, it was an intense year. It was really all I was thinking about. Ah. <laughs> and re- I mean, I was taking in as much information as I could every day. So when it came time to actually write the book, that was the easiest part because it was kind of structured in my mind because I had been thinking about it for myself. And I got to the point where I wanted to make it available to others. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, you did a great job because I was impressed by how much information you have packed into this book. I mean, to really, before you wrote this book, to get this much information, you would have to read dozens and dozens of books and and uh, abstracts and research papers, even more than that, probably. Well, thank you for, yeah, thank you for saying that. I, I wrote the book for that reason, because having done a lot of research myself, I saw what you've seen, which is that the information is very scattered. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to put it all in one place so that it would be easier for people to get up to speed. For someone like me who knew nothing before, I wanted to create a book that would have been easy for me right when I just started my research. So that's how I viewed this book, kind of as a platform for people to think about reality in a new way and to put all the scientific evidence in one place. Well, I think you did a great job. So let's start with, how about defining consciousness? What is it? The way I think about consciousness is it's the part of us that experiences life. And it's it's really difficult to even define with language because it's not something physical. Like I can touch my table, I can touch my head or my leg, Mm -hmm. but my consciousness I can't touch because consciousness is the thing that experiences life. It's Mm -hmm. very subjective. It's kind of the awareness that we have that that is the, the thing that allows us to go through life and register the experiences. That's the best way I can put it. So it's the thing that sees through our eyes and hears through our ears. That's consciousness. Mm -hmm. And what I had always assumed based on my education and just kind of mainstream thinking is that consciousness comes from our brain, meaning our brain has a lot of complex stuff happening, chemical and electrical reactions. And through this brain that has evolved over many, many years, we've developed the capacity to have consciousness. So consciousness in this idea, this mainstream idea, is tied to our brain and our body, which means that when our physical body stops functioning, in other words, when we die, there's no consciousness. And it also means that there couldn't be anything like 
remote viewing or a psychic ability because consciousness is stuck inside of our skulls. And so if you buy into that idea, it's very difficult to find meaning in life. And that's at least the way I thought about it because if, if when you die, it's over, mm-hmm. then everything that happened during your life, all of your memories, all the ups and downs, they're wiped out. So I used to view life as, as meaningless Mm-hmm. And I thought I thought finding meaning was a rationalization. So people could try to say, well, all these things have happened in my life and therefore I've created meaning. But to me, that was not telling of any intrinsic meaning in life. It was just kind of something that people were making up. So that was my worldview is that life had no meaning. When you die, it's over. And that's kind of it. It's a random universe. Mm-hmm. And that's that's exactly the the idea that I ended up challenging. Well, it sounds like a very good idea to challenge <laughs> because really then what's the point? Um, and if, if you, you can see death either as the end or just a, a, a transition, just like birth is a transition into a human body, death is a transition out of a human body to something else that some people seem to be pretty sure of what that is, and others of us are really aren't sure what that actually is. But we have an innate uh, sense that there is a transition; that it it's not just an ending. Right, right. But if you talk to a, a mainstream scientist and most of academia, the idea that consciousness continues after death is is like blasphemy. It's impossible. It doesn't. It goes against everything that science seems to be telling us, which I now disagree with. But that's kind of the, the environment that I grew up in. So I just thought that was the case. And therefore, I reasoned that life didn't have any meaning. And so um, I actually think I was my reasoning was accurate, assuming that my original assumptions about consciousness were correct, which I now think are incorrect. Mm-hmm. So as I've explored this topic, what I've learned is that the assumption that consciousness comes from the brain is only an assumption. Even a mainstream scientist would acknowledge that it's not known how this happens. And that's something I didn't realize. I didn't realize it was an assumption. I thought we already knew the answer. I think there and, are a lot of things that are actually assumptions that that people um, think are, are really true or, you know, or, or accurate information. A lot of things really are hypothesis and we don't really know. That's a very good point to evaluate the things that we actually know versus the things that we think are true. It's something I've had to do with everything I come across now is, is to really unpack all of my assumptions. But, but this assumption around consciousness is a, is a really big one for all the reasons we've just discussed. And, and the reason it's an assumption is that we know, we know the brain has some impact on the way we experience life. So let's say someone gets brain damage in the area of the brain responsible for vision that person might have trouble seeing. So we can see that we change the brain in a certain way and then consciousness shifts accordingly. And similarly with Alzheimer's disease, for example, we can see degeneration in parts of the brain that are associated with losses in memory. Again, Mm -hmm. if you change the brain, you change consciousness. This is known as a correlation, meaning there's this relationship between the the state of the brain and the kind of consciousness that's experienced. So what most of science is doing is saying, well, there's this really strong correlation, and therefore it must mean that the brain produces consciousness. And that's exactly the leap that I'm challenging. And in statistics, what they say is correlation does not imply causation. What does that mean? So imagine if you have a fire, and then lots of firefighters show up to put out the fire. Mm -hmm. In another instance, you have a larger fire, and then more firefighters show up. So here we have a correlation between the size of the fire and the number of firefighters that show up at the scene. Okay. The problem is we're not saying that the firefighters caused the fire, right? <laughs> we're just saying there's a, a correlation. And this is an analogy used by a philosopher, Dr. Bernardo Castro, to show the potential error that we're making with consciousness. That, yeah, there's a really strong correlation, but it doesn't mean necessarily that the relationship is causal, that the brain's producing consciousness. Mm-hmm. So That's a good analogy, <laughs> Because it's hard, it's hard to pick that one apart, you know. And yeah, well, it's it's an important one to acknowledge as an assumption, because once we get on the same base with all of our scientists and say, "Look, we recognize correlation, but we know it's not saying that the brain's causing consciousness." This is this is what's known in science as the hard problem of consciousness. Mm-hmm. And Science Magazine 
one of the authorities in science has called this the number two question remaining in all of science. Oh, what's the number one? Just, the, num- just to- the number one question is, what is the universe made of? And, and we'll get to the answer to both. Oh, great. <laughs> uh, which the answer, I mean, the, the number two question in science is, is what is the biological basis of consciousness? And that's just a scientific way of saying, how is it that the brain produces consciousness? My answer would be, well, your question assumes that the brain does produce consciousness when it doesn't. So this, the question itself is erroneous. Mm-hmm. And number, the number one question in all of science, what is the universe made of? As we'll discuss, I would argue that consciousness is what the universe is made of. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yes, I would agree. So going back to this, this analogy of, of correlation, causation, the brain has a relationship with consciousness, but I'm arguing we need to evaluate another way of looking at it. What if the brain is acting like a filtering mechanism or mm-hmm. like a blindfold? Mm-hmm. So the brain is still impacting the way we experience life, and we know that's the case because if someone gets, gets brain damage, their consciousness changes. But it's almost like a television receiver. Mm-hmm. And this is not a precise analogy, but it's a way to start wrapping our heads around it. A television receiver will receive a signal of a TV show, and you're watching it on your TV screen. And let's say someone takes a hammer and smashes the antenna. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, the show is, is appearing, it's like scratchy on your screen. But the signal that the television was receiving hasn't been damaged at all. All that's been damaged is the machinery that was processing the signal. Mm-hmm. So that's the way we could look at the brain as like a, I like to use the term filtering mechanism because the brain, I, I view it as a limiter of consciousness, that there's a much broader reality and the brain actually shows us just a tiny sliver. Right. And the analogy that I use again comes from the philosopher I mentioned, Dr. Bernardo Castro, who says, we should imagine that all of reality is like one big stream of water where water's like consciousness and each of us is a whirlpool within that stream. Mm. Meaning we have this sense of individuality, like a whirlpool does, but we're fundamentally connected as part of the bigger stream. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. As, I like to as, use a lake and, and droplets of uh, rain mm. as an idea. Well, yeah, you know, for anyone, of a, anyone um, like myself who studied neuro-linguistic programming, this is kind of the basis of neuro-linguistic programming, that our brain has all of these filters that filter information coming in and... It would seem to me that there's a correlation here. I think it's very similar. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, the, the way I look at the brain as a filter is, is, is through a number of phenomena okay. where we see that when the brain is, has actually reductions in functioning, mm-hmm. the type of consciousness that's experienced is enriched. And that mm-hmm. matches the pattern where if you actually get the brain out of the way, people can experience more. And that's the argument that I'm making exactly. So one of the best cases of that is the near-death experience where a person has little or no brain functioning, mm-hmm. and yet they experience a reality that they describe as clearer than usual, and their thinking is more logical than usual. So their consciousness is enriched at a time when their brain is barely functioning or totally off. Mm-hmm. So that's an example of get the brain out of the way, and consciousness somehow is, is enriched because the brain was, was blocking us in a sense. So are they, are they becoming lucid at that, at that time then, or they is are, that different? No, they, well, they describe, yeah, they describe being lucid. They describe memories that are occurring. They s- describe seeing things in the room sometimes that are verified as accurate. Mm-hmm. That's at least what their consciousness is experiencing. And yet their body is experiencing something that seems like it shouldn't be capable of producing memories like that because the brain's basically dead. Mm-hmm. So this is, wow. well, this is matching the pattern that when the brain's out of the way, there's a broader consciousness. Mm-hmm. And we see this in a few other areas. So one is with psychedelics. Mm-hmm. Research now is showing that when people take a psychedelic and have an enriched consciousness through a trip, there are reductions in brain functioning. Oh, interesting. It's like like getting the brain out of the way allows people to unlock what's always been there, but the brain has been blocking it. So that's that's another case. Another one is one I'm wondering if you're familiar with, given your background, is called terminal lucidity. And this is where a person, for example, might have had Alzheimer's disease for many years. Mm Mm-hmm. So memory is basically gone. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, right before dying, maybe a few days or a few hours before dying, the person snaps back into it like nothing happened. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I haven't had much experience, but when I was working as a nurse, I, ha- I did have some experience with this. It's pretty fascinating. Right. And, and this is what is showing us the pattern again of a person with a damaged brain and a lucid consciousness. Mm-hmm. So we see this also a savants. 
That's another mm. good thing. These are people mm. that have extraordinary mental abilities, like mathematical abilities, music, music abilities. Rain, the movie Rain Man was based off of a savant. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And yet the person usually has a damaged brain, and they, they're very, they have impairments in certain aspects of their life, and yet they're incredible mathematicians, like beyond anything you could imagine. So we see this pattern again of a reduction in, in brain activity or brain functionality associated with more or enriched consciousness. Mark, in your uh, research, did you find that, uh, it, it's my understanding that with autism, that this is often uh, the case, where the person has a, a difficulty with uh, emotional intelligence and, and social interaction, but they usually have like one area where they're extraordinarily bright or unusually bright in. Yes, there are cases of savants who also have autism. Mm-hmm. That's definitely something I've seen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, okay, so so you're talking now about a, a damaged brain and how that can be, I don't know if circumvented is the right word, but how a person can still function with a damaged brain. One mm-hmm. of the things that I find fascinating is, to me, consciousness has to exist outside of ourselves, because what about children who remember past lives or experiences that we have as adults where you you come in contact with someone and you immediately feel a strong connection or a dislike, you know, one, one way or the other, a positive connection or a negative connection, or you go somewhere and you just know everything's familiar. You know you've been there before. I completely agree with you. There are these phenomena which scientists would call anomalies, meaning things that don't fit into the current paradigm that the brain produces consciousness, and yet they are occurring everywhere. And, and you mentioned a few examples, and I mentioned a bunch of others in my book. That's where I, I focus my argument. I look mm-hmm. at all the anomalies and say, look, if any of these anomalies are real, we can explain the anomalies by adopting a view of reality like the stream of water where we're individual whirlpools. And the way to think about this is, let's say some of the water from my whirlpool gets into another person's whirlpool. That's mm-hmm. like some of my consciousness getting into their consciousness. That's like a telepathic communication. Mm-hmm. So this model of reality, the whirlpools in, in a single stream of consciousness, predicts that psychic abilities would be real. Mm-hmm. If, you, if you look even further and say, what happens when the whirlpool stops being a whirlpool? The water flows back into the broader stream. The water doesn't leave the stream. It just changes form into something different. So analogously, we would say that when the physical body dies, consciousness doesn't die under this model of reality. So this whirlpool model would predict that consciousness continues when the body dies. And that's the way I framed my argument. I look at all of the phenomena and all of the scientific evidence for psychic abilities and all the evidence for the survival of consciousness beyond the body and say, look, if any one of this one of these phenomena is real, just one, not even all of them, mm-hmm. then we're going to have a hard time explaining it if consciousness comes from the brain and if consciousness is just stuck in our skull. But if we accept this alternative view that consciousness is fundamental, and, and again, when I mention the whirlpools in the stream, this comes from Dr. Bernardo Castrop, if we adopt that view, we can explain the phenomena that you mentioned and these other anomalies very, very well. And what I reason is, look, there's an abundance of evidence in many areas that as a rational person, I can't say they're all wrong. And therefore I'm forced to adopt a new view of reality. Mm -hmm. So if we all are connected in this way, we all, basically we all are part of one, I would say it might be a good way to say it. Um, Some people do have a psychic or precognition or, you know, some, some sort of, ability, um, non-ordinary ability, and and that's very accurate. And other people, either they don't, no, I guess that wouldn't be a good way to say it, but they're not, they're not in touch with that part of themselves. And that's always, um, that's always, you know, kind of, I've wondered why is that? Because I do feel that we all have the ability, because we're all connected into this one consciousness, but it seems like so many people, they ignore their intuition, they don't trust it, they, um, you know, they ignore when they get, um, you know, kind of a, a psychic hit or whatever you want to call it. 
I, I'm just, I'm really curious as to not so much why that is, but how we can change that. Because I think the more people who can, who can see the, the relevance of this, uh, the less separated we would all be. Well, I agree with you completely. I think the first step is to acknowledge that these phenomena are real, that intuition is not something made up and that psychic abilities are, are innate to all of us. And what I show in the book is that many of the abilities for a normal person that hasn't exercised uh, or even tried to practice these abilities, they, that they exist, but they're very, very subtle. Mm -hmm. So people might, might not really know that they have the abilities because unless you had statistics, you wouldn't, you wouldn't detect that the abilities exist. So to me, the first step is to acknowledge the, that these phenomena are innate and to, to show scientifically, which has been done, it just isn't being talked about in many mainstream circles, that, that th these are abilities we all have. Mm -hmm. And I think when people acknowledge that first, then the question arises, which is exactly what you raised, how can we then use the abilities to enhance our lives and to, and to make the world a better place? So that's why another reason I wrote this book is to try to establish the reality of all this stuff so that people begin to open up. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think um, now I'm not sure if this this might be too far out, but I feel very strongly and through experience that I have what I call a team, Team Janine. They are not in a human body, but they are there to help me. And I believe everybody has a team. Um, you just have to connect into it. And the more that I ask for help, because they can't interfere in your life, that's my understanding. You have to ask for help. The more that I ask for help, the more that I get it, they also give me little hints. Um, I was on a zip line, and uh, before I went, I just I got this little hit that I should take this little rain jacket that I brought with me, and I thought, all I had to do was throw it in the car, no big deal, but I went, nah, it's so hot. Well, the first two zip lines were in really cold, wet, poor, downpour weather, and I thought, man, I, I didn't listen. I, I got the little message, but I didn't listen. And I think a lot of that mm. is listening and, and just taking action, regardless of where it comes from. We have those intuitive knowings, and I think most people ignore them. I, I think you're right. And I'm very open to all the things you just described. Um, one of the phenomena that I've looked at is known as mediumship, which is mm -hmm. the ability to communicate with a, a being that's no longer in a physical body, meaning that their consciousness is still in the stream. It's, it's just that someone who's in a body is able to access that water somehow. And that can occur with uh, beings that have been in physical bodies, mm -hmm. like just a person who died. But there are also, I think, discarnate, meaning not embodied, mm -hmm. um, intelligences that aren't necessarily human. They're, they're I don't know, interdimensional beings. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. there's a phenomenon known as channeling, which is a type of mediumship. And in the book, I talk about the scientific evidence for mediumship, peer-reviewed journal papers with five levels of blinding. So there's, there's real stuff on this. Wow. But, but the phenomenon of, of channeling is, is where a person goes into a trance-like state and this discarnate being or beings speak through the vocal cords of the person. Mm -hmm. And so someone might look at that and wonder, is it some kind of a psychological disorder or is the person faking it? I've actually interviewed uh, the, one of the lead researchers on this topic from the Institute of Noetic Sciences who scientifically evaluates people that have this ability. Mm -hmm. And what the scientists find is that the symptoms exhibited by the person channeling do not align with psychological disorders, mm -hmm. that something is, is unique that's happening and these people are, are, can function very normally in society and have jobs just like everyone else, but they go into this trance-like state and they are embodying a type of intelligence that is clearly not their own. Their voice changes, the words that they use change. Even in the room around them, the physical environment shifts uh, very slightly. There's something called a, a random number generator. So it's basically a machine that will generate a zero and a one in a random fashion. So over time, there are half ones, 50% ones, and 50% zeros. Mm -hmm. What the scientists have done at the Institute of Noetic Sciences is put this machine in the room when the person is channeling these other intelligences versus not channeling. And what they find is that when the person's channeling, the machine behaves non-randomly, meaning that it produces maybe more ones than zeros, statistically speaking. Like hmm. it's not a random chance occurrence mathematically. Interesting. So, 
So there are these pieces of evidence that come together which suggest, look, look, channeling is a real phenomenon, which is getting back to what you were describing, this notion that there are intelligences beyond our individual whirlpool that exist that we can tap into. Now, someone who's channeling is very explicitly tapping into it in a way that we can all see because we see the person sometimes even convulsing. Mm -hmm. It's pretty incredible, like whites of the eyes showing, and everyone has a different style of the channelers. There are people who do it differently, but something clearly is happening. You have to wonder, like in, with your experiences, are all of us tapping into that in other ways that are not as dramatic? And it's much more subtle where we're being nudged and we don't realize what's happening because we can't, we can't visually see into our mind. We don't even know where our thoughts are coming from. They just kind of appear. Mm-hmm. And, oh, that was good. That's something that I would like to talk about a little bit is where our thoughts come from. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I, think, I think they're all part of the stream mm. and we're kind of receiving them. And we're, we're, they're coming in different ways. And maybe as kind of you were alluding to, intelligences beyond our individual whirlpool are influencing the types of thoughts that come in. I think we have to be open to that. Mm-hmm. So what does that do to the concept of choice and, think, and free will? Yeah, it's a really <laughs> complex topic. I think this is one of those topics that is 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 not comprehensible to the human mind. But mm-hmm. I will... I'll explain my perspective on it. I think if all reality is this one stream of consciousness, that's all there is to all of reality, then that stream of consciousness has to have free will. I think that's just innate in the stream, that Mm -hmm. it's all that exists. So it it should have infinite free will at that level. The question then becomes, if you're a whirlpool within the stream, does the whirlpool have free will? Mm -hmm. And that gets into questions of, well, does the whirlpool even exist? because the whirlpool is just made of water and it's just kind of a false distinction that we're making to call it something separate. Mm -hmm. So is it really just the stream that's governing everything that the whirlpool does? I don't know. Mm -hmm. What's the interaction between the overall stream's will and the whirlpool's will? Can the whirlpool tap into the stream and then exercise the will more fully? That's where I really, I don't know the answer to that. Um, I I, I tend to think that, that maybe the more we try to tap into the broader stream and the more open we are, just like you were describing, it's like kind of the humility to acknowledge that there is intelligence beyond the individual and to ask. That might allow us to tap into this broader intelligence and broader stream so that the will, so to speak, can flow through the whirlpool more freely. Hmm, interesting, interesting. I was hoping you would have a, with all your research, like a really really solid answer, you know, answer to this is what you, you know, this is what it is. But I no. realize that it's all, I mean, at this point, it's all I, and I, well, I suppose, I guess you're supposed to say a with an H now. I, I still can't get used to that, but a hypothesis. Exactly. What yeah, happened I, to an hypothesis? <laughs> I don't know. Somewhere that all changed. <laughs> well, I think it feels like we have free will. Mm-hmm. It feels like we have choice, and probably the best we can do is act as if we do mm-hmm. and do our best. <laughs> yeah, that's. I think that's good advice. That because you you could drive yourself crazy um, trying to figure this out, and also if you strongly believe there's no free will and there's no choice, I'm not sure that's positive effect on one's life. Um, it, it depends on how you take that, I guess. Um, let's get back to channeling for just a second because I wanted to, I wanted to ask in, in my experience, I used to have some, a, an amazing channeling experience. It was, there were actually three of us and I was the one who it came through and, and the voice was so low and so deep. And mm. I remember, I remember that I, I had to like take huge deep breaths to try to hold this consciousness in my body and speak. But I, I wonder about, I think it's, it's a, a problem that can happen with channeling is, is like getting out of your way with your ideas and your thoughts and just being a pure a, a vessel for the information that's coming in. Mm. I think sometimes it, the information can be filtered through your experiences and that's a that can be a, a sticky point with channeling. I completely agree, based on everything I've seen, is that the people that are able to channel most successfully kind of get their individuality out of the way. 
mm-hmm. and they become a pure vessel. But there still is some kind of filtering mechanism because the person has an individual brain mm-hmm. and the information has to come through that vehicle somehow. So there's right. there's some distortion that occurs, but I think there are channels that are able to do it more purely than others. And what I've found, especially in talking to people who channel themselves, is that it's kind of an acquired skill that over time they learn how to do this better. They also learn how to embody the energy because they often talk about a physical energy that accompanies the intelligence which can be overwhelming at times. And mm-hmm. I know channels that were kind of knocked out for hours after channeling initially. Oh, wow. And then as their bodies and their nervous systems became accustomed to the energy, they're now able to recover much more quickly. Mm-hmm. Interesting. This is something that I, I had known, but you, you really talk about it in great depth in, in your book, is the U.S. government has been experimenting with a lot of this for quite a long time. Uh, they don't make a... a you know, they don't make it like well-known, but they use telepathy and, and remote viewing. What would you say about that in your from your research? Well, I was very shocked to learn that I think that's correct, <laughs> that the U.S. government's been doing all this stuff for a long time for national security. And remote viewing, we mentioned it a few times, it's it's the ability to perceive something at a distance. So it's like seeing something without seeing it with your eyes. It's seeing it with your mind that's far away in space and time, which sounds pretty crazy for someone that's never experienced that before. Mm-hmm. And I, I do think this is one of those abilities that seems to be innate. It, it can be learned, but there are people that are just naturally better at it than others. Right. And it seems that the U.S. government was able to recruit a lot of these people. And in my book, in Chapter 4 on remote viewing, I was able to include recently declassified documents from the CIA. So they released documents. They showed their internal – these were internal documents from – the 70s and 80s, that's when a lot of these programs were running. And mm-hmm. perhaps they still are, but they're just not being spoken about. Um, and they say in, in these documents explicitly, remote viewing is a real phenomenon. Implications are revolutionary. These are direct quotes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that was pretty powerful for me as a researcher. Yeah. And I mean, I can imagine how for a lot of people, it, that just wouldn't even seem possible. Right. Right. Well, it's hard to absorb the reality of something that we haven't directly experienced. So the analogy I like to give is, is it's like if you were trying to tell someone what, it, what the taste of chocolate is like and that person had never even eaten dessert before, how would the person have any way to relate to what you're talking about? Mm-hmm. And that's what we're discussing here. We're talking about subjective experiences. And experience is not something that I can see or touch. It's something that has happened to a person and that person's trying to use language to describe it. And that's kind of, it's like an intellectual gap that someone taking that information in who hasn't ever had the experience has to open his or her mind and try to imagine what someone else would go through and be open enough to that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What about uh, precognition? What, how would you define precognition? Precognition is the ability to know or sense something about the future before the future is known by anyone. And this taps into the idea that not only are we talking about a stream of consciousness, the one stream that we're all a part of, but that consciousness also exists beyond space and time. Mm -hmm. So in a precognitive situation where someone's knowing the future before it happens, whether it's in a dream state or sometimes in in a non-dream state, it's like consciousness is somehow reaching forward in time because consciousness is beyond time. And that's kind of the, the theoretical explanation for it. But scientifically, this is something that was shown at the U.S. government and that like precognitive remote viewing occurred where someone could literally see something with their mind before it happened far mm-hmm. away. Mm-hmm. But the, the most compelling statistical studies are the ones where someone is looking at a computer screen and the computer screen randomly starts showing pictures. And some of the pictures are neutral, like a a picture of a mountain or something. Mm -hmm. And other pictures are supposed to be arousing, like a violent image. And the reason that the researchers do this is that from traditional psychology experiments, we know that if someone is shown a picture of like a violent image, the person's body physiology will spike unconsciously. Mm -hmm. So like the skin will have an electric conductivity that's a very, it's a very small but measurable thing. The pupils will dilate. They'll see changes in the heart and in the brain. So the body's physiology will change when there's an arousing image versus when there's a very neutral image. 
So that's that's what's accepted in, in, in science. Now what some of the, the more maverick scientists are doing is looking at what happens to the body before the picture is even shown on the screen. Mm. And if precognition were real at an unconscious level, then the body's physiology should spike, whether it's the skin, the pupils, the, the brain, or the heart. That should spike a little bit before the picture is shown. And no one knows what picture is going to come up because it's randomly selected by the computer. Okay. So not even the person running the experiment knows what picture is going to come up. Mm-hmm. And what the, what the experimenters have found is that there is a small but highly significant statistical effect where a few seconds before the image shows up, the person's body reacts in a direction that's consistent with the picture that shows up. So meaning their body, their body physiology will spike before the arousing picture shows up. Interesting. Interesting. So to me, what this might suggest, because these are discussions I've, I've had on and off, is that all time is one. We, in a physical body on this planet, we experience past, present, and future. But in actuality, it's all one. And that's why we can uh, access the future easily. Yes. Yeah. Another way to phrase it would be to say that we interpret past, present, future. Oh, but that's good. really just a, that's just a, a, like a mentalization. And it's, it's so... It just seems so obvious and like one of those assumptions that you mentioned that we don't even think to question it. But really, the past is something we take for granted. Right. Like, but I can't prove that the past happened. All I can say is, well, I have a memory of what happened yesterday when I ate lunch. Right. That, and that memory occurs right now. Mm-hmm. It, it, it didn't occur yesterday. The memory is occurring now. I'm interpreting and inferring that something happened yesterday, but there's a gap there, an assumption. So we can do that with any thought, any thought about the, the future as well. Everything occurs in the now, so to speak. Right. And so I think that's what I totally agree with you, that really all that exists at, the, at some level of reality beyond the human mind trying to interpret it is kind of a uniform time where everything is simultaneous. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's one of those things that I, can, that I do feel, and it feels right to me, but to actually I, you know, like figure out how that works, I just... It, I try not. I try not to think about it too much because it drives me nuts. Because I can't, but I do feel it's true. <laughs> well, that's a, you raise a really important point, which I think a lot of our scientists sometimes are overlooking. Which is the notion that we are literally incapable as a human being of understanding some of this. It's sort of like if an amoeba tried to learn calculus. It's just <laughs> not possible. Mm-hmm. It's not mm-hmm. possible, and I think we're probably like the amoeba, and maybe it's even more complex than calculus. So we're we're looking at like little data points and trying to abstract and extrapolate things. And another analogy I like to use is uh, the story Flatland from the 1800s is where you have people who are living in a two-dimensional reality, like basically people living in a flat piece of paper. Mm-hmm. And if you imagine that a sphere, which is a three-dimensional circle, mm-hmm. if a sphere intersects with the two-dimensional paper, mm-hmm. it will intersect as a circle. Right. So the people in the Flatland will say, look, there's a circle there. And they'll swear it's a circle. They can analyze every part of that circle. But in reality, it's, it's a sphere. So they're missing, they're missing reality. They're just mm-hmm. getting a little sliver of it mm-hmm. but because it's all they're capable of comprehending at their level of reality. And I think that's where we are. We're kind of like the people in the two-dimensional flatland trying to abstract things that are spheres. And all we see is the circle. Mm-hmm. Interesting. You know, I've for, for so long, I mean, ever since I can remember, it, it, it just has seemed to me that that being in a human body is just so limiting in so many ways. <laughs> mm-hmm. I agree. Maybe I'm like, why do we design. choose? Why do we choose to do this? <laughs> it's a, it's one of the big questions, and I've asked myself that too. Why, if there is this broader reality, why are we limited? And right. maybe it's part of the experience of being a human is mm-hmm. to have limitations imposed on us so that we're able to kind of learn, almost like having handcuffs on trying to do things mm. and, and learn with, with a, in a limited body. That is an excellent analogy. I had, not, I had not thought of that, but I think that's a perfect analogy. <laughs> that's great. Oh, okay. This is fun. Um, let's go to telepathy. What is telepathy? Telepathy is mind-to-mind communication, mm-hmm. and it's 
one of these abilities, again, that a, a mainstream scientist would say is impossible. And I, I think there's actually a ton of evidence for it. I have a whole chapter on telepathy in the book. The best evidence scientifically from a traditional standpoint is known as the Gonsfeld experiment. Mm, and the mm -hmm. way the study is designed is you have two people separated. So one's in one room, one's in the other. We'll call um, the person who's known as the receiver, Bob, okay. and the person who is the sender, Jane. And by receiving and sending, I mean someone who is receiving and sending a mental telepathic communication. Okay. So let's say that Jane is the sender in one room. She's shown a picture by the experimenters, or maybe it's a movie. She's shown something visual. And the experimenters ask Jane, the sender, to try to mentally send what she's looking at to Bob in the other room. Bob's mm -hmm. the receiver. So Jane does this for a while. Jane doesn't claim to have any special psychic abilities. And after a while, Bob is shown four images. And one of the four images was exactly what Jane was mentally sending him. So Bob is asked, which of these four was Jane sending to you? If it were just completely a chance occurrence, Bob or the person in Bob's room would guess correctly one out of four times or 25% because it's just random. Mm -hmm. That's not what the experimenters find. They find that the person in Bob's room guesses correctly closer to 32% of the time. Wow. Which seems small, but statistically when it's done thousands of times, it's known as a Six Sigma effect, meaning the odds that that happens just by chance, statistically, is more than a billion to one. Wow. So it's suggesting that there's like some information that's getting through. It's mm -hmm. not 100% telepathic. It's just a little bit. And that's actually what we experience on a day-to-day -day basis. Because if we were all 100% telepathic, we would know each other's thoughts all the time. And that just doesn't happen. Instead, it's more like maybe you think of someone and then they text you and it's not someone you thought about in a while and it happens every now and then. Maybe that's like the incremental 7%, the 32 versus the 25%. You know, I have to, I have to say something because that I thought it was kind of funny when you said it. Um, because 20 years ago, we would have said, I'm dating myself, but or 30 years ago even, we would have said, um, when you think of somebody and they'd, they'd call you on the phone. <laughs> <laughs> Right. Uh, but today it's text. <laughs> and a while ago it would have been a letter. A letter, right. Snail mail letter. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I know quite a few people who have told me that they knew when someone they loved, like a parent or a brother or sister, they knew when they passed. They, they, just, they, they just felt it. They knew right away. Most people, when they get that, they'll check the time so that they can verify it. Mm. Also, twins. I'm not a twin, so I, I don't know this uh, firsthand, but it seems to me that twins, they're able to, to really tune into each other and they don't have to say a lot. That's what the studies show as well, that Perhaps we're all telepathic at the 32 versus 25% level, which is maybe like the, the minimum, but mm -hmm. there are people that exhibit greater tele telepathy than, than that 7% differential. And one example is twins or emo people that have an emotional closeness seem to exhibit greater telepathy. Uh, but twins is a really big example. And even with some twins, there are events, they're called telesomatic events. Meaning that when some when one of the twins is physically impacted, the tw other twin who's far away will feel what that twin felt, even though it didn't happen to that one person. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Wow. And is that something that's fairly common with twins or is that more of a rarity? It's, I believe, around 30% mm -hmm. of twins experience that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, a, it's something that's being documented. Interesting. I, I think it's just, it's so awesome that there is so much research and documentation going on with all of this because, um, you know, otherwise it's just easy. It's so easy for people to just, I want to say poo poo it, you know, just it's to think you're crazy or you're, you know, you're just making this stuff up or there's no way. And I think for me, it, it's there's because a lot of people have been brought up with the notion that a lot of this isn't, isn't real. And um, for me, the key is being open to new things, to new ideas, and at least, at least giving them a, a try and, and to be flexible. 
flexibility is so important, especially in life right now, um, uh, to, you know, to, to comprehending and taking in some of this information. That's why I think for, for anybody who's really interested in, in, in having, uh, the research to back up their ideas uh, when they want to talk to somebody about these things. I think your book is really an excellent tool. Thank you. That's exactly what I was hoping to do with it. That's why I did it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So do we know, so we don't know what the biological basis of consciousness is. Mm-hmm. Um, we know the brain processes, or, uh, can I say we know, or do we think we know? <laughs> The, but the brain processes consciousness mm-hmm. um, as information, but it does not produce it. What about animals? Well, if we look at humans, humans have brains that are processing consciousness. It would just seem to reason that other beings that have brains or brain-like organs would also be capable of processing consciousness. So I, I view basically, I view everything in, in the physical world as vehicles through which consciousness has an experience. And animals are other types of vehicles. And that's theoretically how I think about it. But also, in my book, I have a whole chapter on animals that exhibit psychic abilities. And this hasn't been studied quite as much as humans. um, But even humans haven't been studied as much as they should. But animals in particular, that's even more esoteric. But there has been some work done. And Dr. Rupert Sheldrake has been one of the leaders in this area. He's a Mm -hmm. former Cambridge biochemist. Mm -hmm. And his strongest evidence, I think, comes from a dog and dog owner pair where a woman claimed that her dog seemed to know when she was coming home and would walk to the window before she would come home. And there are a number of instances like this, but there was one pair in particular where he saw a really strong effect. So mm-hmm. he, he set up a traditional experiment where he sent the woman miles away from home at a randomly selected time in a cab so it wasn't even her car, <laughs> basically controlled for all the things that a skeptic would say of like, mm-hmm. oh, well, the dog just smelled there, or the dog heard the car coming home, or the dog knew that she came home at this hour. He randomized all that. And he had a camera on what was happening at home with the dog to see if the dog would go to the window when she was on her way home. Mm-hmm. And what you could see, and, and there's actually a video available of one of the trials he ran, the, the woman is told by the experimenters at a certain time, okay, now it's time for you to come home. She doesn't know when that's going to be, so it's randomized. And she gets up, she starts walking to the cab, and at that point, the dog walks to the window. Wow. <laughs> well, I have to tell you, I'm not surprised, because I will give a, a recent personal example. Before I went to Costa Rica, I hadn't done any packing yet. I didn't even get my suitcases out. But I'd say about two days before I started, you know, pulling clothes out and and getting my suitcases out, my dog knew something was up. Mm. And she stuck to me like glue. Now, I love her dearly, but I was like, get away. (laughs) I can't even walk. (laughs) I'm tripping over her because she just, she would not leave me. She was right there the whole time. And I could tell that she was like, she felt a little nervous. She felt a little, you know, off. Yeah. Well, that's what Dr. Sheldrake says is that when, when he talks about these abilities to pet owners, mm-hmm. they're not surprised because they experience it all the time. But it's not, it's not done in a way, in a scientifically rigorous manner. So that's right. what he's been trying to do is to show, look, if we treat this like a science experiment, we can see there's a real effect. It's not 100% of the time. But statistically, something is happening beyond what chance would predict. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I had been thinking about it. You know, like I was thinking about, okay, what am I going to take? I had started really seriously thinking about the trip and and where I was going, what I was going to be doing, what clothes I should take and all of that. And that's when she really started getting nervous and would just not leave my side at all. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty crazy. Mm-hmm. This has been really great. I'm really enjoying our conversation. Is there anything that we haven't touched on that you think is important for the listeners to be aware of? There's one topic I always like to mention when I can, mm-hmm. and it's part of the near-death experience, okay. which again is when a person has a vivid experience, even though the brain is off or just barely functioning. And sometimes a person describes going into other dimensions of reality or experiences, discarnate beings. Mm-hmm. So beings that aren't physical, but there's some kind of intelligence. They could be deceased loved ones, or they could be kind of like a mystical being of light or even a religious figure is sometimes reported. Mm-hmm. 
but also in this other dimension of reality or whatever's happening when the filters unlock and the broader stream is un unleashed people often describe what's known as a life review mm-hmm. where mm-hmm. they go through their entire life in a flash so they relive all the events that occurred but it's not only through their eyes they're also reliving it through the eyes of the people that they impacted oh interesting mm-hmm. which is revealing of this interconnectedness it's like somehow when people are released from their individual whirlpool, they become the one stream, or as Erwin Schrodinger, the physicist, called it, the one mind. Mm-hmm. They kind of are able to view life through multiple lenses, through the lenses of, of multiple whirlpools rather than just one. And that's a very powerful phenomenon that changes people's lives in an instant. One of my favorite cases is of a man named Daniel Brinkley, who I interviewed for my own podcast, which is called Where Is My Mind? Mm-hmm. And uh, we had a whole episode on the life review. And the reason I mentioned him is he had four near-death experiences. He had open-heart surgery twice. He was struck by lightning and had brain surgery. Um, Each time he had a very distinct life review that started from the beginning of his life. So he had to relive certain things four times over. Wow. For him, that was particularly traumatic because he fought in Vietnam Mm. where he killed many people and he told me that he was vicious in combat. So during his life review, he had to relive the deaths of all the people that he killed. And not only that, but he felt the pain of the child who no longer had a father. Mm. So he felt the indirect effect of his actions. And basically the way people describe it is, in the life review, people experience the effects of their loving or or unloving actions. And they come back from the experience, usually much less materialistic, caring much more about the little things in life and the way they're treating the clerk at the store versus mm-hmm. how big their house is. Mm-hmm. And that's a very powerful notion. I mean, if, if we accept the life review as something that maybe even at least some of us go through, because it's reported so often, mm-hmm. if not everyone, mm-hmm. maybe it's just part of life and seeing how we learn and we, can, we kind of evaluate how we acted during life. That is enough to shift someone's behavior, I think. Oh, I would think so. And you know what, what comes to me while you're talking about this is, why does it have to wait until an end of life incident? Um, you know, I mean, how much different would the world be if we were able to understand what another person, what our actions, the, how they're affecting another person? Right, right. Well, that's the value of, of being able to learn about these phenomena because hopefully we can maybe take advantage of the knowledge and act differently so that we're more prepared. And it, it's, it just seems that this behavior, kind of trying to live with a concern for others, is in alignment with the nature of reality because the nature of reality seems to be one where we are literally connected as part of the same stream, that we seem like we're separate, but separation is one of these illusions, sort of like time. We perceive it and interpret separation, but really it doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's such an important concept. And the the trick is that I think there are a number of people that understand that, but to actually live and have empathy and compassion for others in in a way that encompasses this this knowledge is is difficult. It can be difficult. And maybe that's part of the challenge of life. <laughs> is to try to act that way even if we're in the state of forgetting mm. and to constantly remind ourselves and to be not not to get sucked up in, into our in too much into our day to day and maintain this higher level perspective while still being in the quote unquote mundane. It's like keeping this broader perspective while still being a person. And that seems to be the challenge. Right. And I think for people who don't have a sense of of oneness who really do feel a separateness and and don't don't treat other people in a kind way as you'd want to treat yourself or you'd want other people to treat you this kind of information might really help them to to come around to seeing everyone as one and that we are all one and that when you when you do something to harm someone else you're harming yourself too. Right, right. And we don't, we don't feel the effects of that harm when it's happening. 
That's the trick. That's what's mm-hmm. so difficult about it. We don't experience that. But in the life review, all of a sudden, the oneness appear, appears and all the separation seems to go away. We're able to viscerally experience things. And actually, you reminded me of some other cases that are that are reminiscent of the life review, but they're not a life review per se. Okay. There are two examples that I can think of where a person was being physically murdered. Mm-hmm. And in that state, the person had some kind of otherworldly experience where the separation went away and and there was a sense of oneness. In one case in particular, the woman literally became the man that was murdering her. Oh, interesting. And she she felt the pain that he had and that's why he was enacting or acting out the way he was. Mm-hmm. So she immediately understood what he was doing, that he, he was basically experiencing a lot of darkness and his murdering was a way of, of expressing that in a sense. And in that case, this was described on an interview on a podcast called Buddha at the Gas Pump. Mm, the woman's mm-hmm. name is Isira. I-, I think that's how to pronounce it. I-S-I-R-A. The man somehow experienced what she was experiencing, like the dimensions opened up, and he realized the mistake he was making at that point. Oh, my God. And, and he ended up calling the ambulance, and it saved her life in the end. Wow. Oh, I, I just got chills all over. That's pretty amazing. Huh. I wonder how often something like that happens. Hmm. Well, it's, it has to be a rare case where the person lives through the experience. Because right. Maybe it happens and the person ends up dying. I was extrapolating farther that, or outside of murder, you know, mm. just, just harming someone and having that, uh, you know, having that kind of experience of understanding and having that stop your action. I do hear of, of just generally mystical experiences where people whether it's through meditation or a spontaneous experience, they, they talk about oneness mm-hmm. that does alter their life behavior. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't have to come about through a major trauma, although sometimes it does. Yes, I know quite a few people who have have had experiences in that vein, and it does change their perception completely <laughs> um, of so many things that were quote-unquote important. <laughs> become no longer important at all. They they start seeing from a much bigger picture, from a much higher perspective. Right. And a lot of the little stuff that, <clears throat> excuse me, that most people worry about or are concerned with or think are important are just totally a non-starter. Perspective changer, for mm-hmm, sure. Mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, this has been great. Thank you so much. Mark, how can people get your book? I know you have a website. Maybe you could give that information. I don't know if you uh, are open to people contacting you, but whatever you'd like to share. Thank you. Well, my website is just my name, M-A-R-K-G-O-B-E-R, markgober.com. That's and pretty book, easy. It's an easy one. <laughs> and uh, my book's called An End to Upside Down Thinking. Actually, I have a sequel coming out, which I oh. have it's actually the first time I've mentioned it publicly because it happened pretty quickly. But this summer, um, likely end of June, okay. it's called An End to Upside Down Living. <laughs> and the, the book is about how we might live if we accept this view of reality that we've been speaking about. So a lot of the topics we talked about are relevant to that book. Wow. Wow. Well, if you have some new things in that book that we didn't talk about, I'd love to have you back on when you uh, when that comes out. Well, thank you very much. Be that would fun. be great. And also, I, as I mentioned, there's a podcast which is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, all the major podcast players, and it's called Where Is My Mind? Okay. All right. And I noticed, I, I, I actually would like to listen to some of them because I noticed you've got some pretty impressive guests on your podcast. It was fun. I interviewed um, about 50 people, mm-hmm. and all those interviews lasted an hour or sometimes an hour plus. And all those are available on my website for subscription at markgober.com. There's a podcast tab. But kind of the main event that's available on iTunes and other major players is a narrative where it's me and my producer who produces sports shows. And he's asking questions about these topics. And I use clips from the interviews of of, all the people that I talk to, the scientists and near-death experiencers. Oh, nice. That sounds good. Okay. We tried to make it kind of like the easy, absorbable version that people can listen to on the subway in their 30 to 40 minute episodes. <laughs> that sounds great. Okay, thank you. Well, thank you so much, Mark. I really did have fun, and this has been 
you know, lots of great information for people. And I know that a lot of people are going to benefit from our conversation. Well, thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Take care and uh, stay well. (laughs) You too. (laughs) Thank you for listening. And thank you, Mark Gober, for sharing with us these concepts and that frankly make a lot of sense to me. And I hope they make sense to you. He's done an incredible amount of research on consciousness. And um, I really think that his book, The End to Upside Down Thinking, if you're at all interested in this, it, excuse me, it really is worth purchasing because he's got so much in here that is you know, all in one place. It's really, it's really a great work. The podcast website is realjanine.com where you can listen to or download episodes and click on links to my guest information. Sign up for the podcast bi-weekly blog newsletter. Uh, That way you can keep up on new episodes, archives, interesting topics, and healthy recipes. And remember, Janine is J-A-N-E-A-N. To subscribe to Keeping It Real with Janine, go to iTunes or your favorite podcast provider. And if you like using YouTube, I have video slideshows of my conversations on YouTube. Do you know someone who would enjoy my conversation with Mark Gober? I'm sure you do. Please share the love. It's always appreciated. Thanks for listening. Take care and be well.